What amazes you? What amazes you? If I were to ask you that question, how would you respond? Some of you may think, like me, you go to like nature, and you think of like the ocean, and you're sitting there seeing those waves hit the shore, and how beautiful that is, and how vast it is. It's just amazing. Some of you may think of the mountains, just those those mountain peaks. Um, years ago, we were driving through Grand Teton National Park, and just looking at those snow-capped mountains just scream the majesty of God. You were just in awe of what you saw. It was just beautiful. Some of us, when we think about what amazes us, it's probably people. Maybe our husband, our wife, our kids that have just done things that were like, wow, they're just an amazing individual. Just amazing. And I remember years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Ecuador on a mission trip with a company, an organization called E3 Partners. And one of the things they did is they would take an American and put them with a local believer there in that community. And you would go around into a designated, I guess, community there that they were trying to reach for the gospel. And because an American was there with them, people would come listen to us. Um, it's just we, we look weird walking around that neighborhood and stuff, and all of a sudden so they would come listen. But anyway, they would pair you up with a local, and then we'd have an interpreter that would interpret for us because uh, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. They couldn't understand anything I was saying, so we had this one interpreter. But the local that was assigned to me from the local church, I remember we would go up to houses, and we would knock on doors, and people would come and start talking to us. And inevitably, we would get challenged on some things. There would be some hard questions. And I remember the local believer there that was assigned to me. It seemed like every question that came out, he'd pop open his Bible, he'd flip over to a passage, boom, there it was. He would explain the situation or what the Bible says about it. We'd get in another, what I call kind of difficult situation, he'd pull out his Bible, he'd find it again. And I'm sitting there, I'm supposed to be the missionary, knows what I'm doing. I'm sitting there watching this guy go through his Bible and just over and over getting people back to God's Word and what God's Word says. And there was sometimes I just stood back and I was just like, wow, I want to know God's Word like this dude knows God's Word. I mean, he is amazing. He is amazing. He just amazed me with his knowledge of God's Word. And I was so thankful that I could be paired with him. And, you know, when you look at Scripture, the Bible says that Jesus was amazed by people on two occasions. I don't know if you knew that, but he was amazed by people on two occasions. And today we're going to look at one of those occasions. And we're actually going to flip back and see the other one as well. But go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to be in a very familiar passage on the centurion and his faith. So go to Matthew 8. We're going to be in verses 5 through 13. There's also a parallel passage in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10, that has a lot more detail in it. We're going to go on the more simplified version, and I'll tell you why there's a little difference there as we work through it. But last week, our, our lesson, our sermon was on courageous love, and today it's going to be on courageous faith. So let's pick up in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8, and I'm just going to read the, the whole passage here so we all just kind of on the same page. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, and I'm reading from the ESV version. So you know, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Some of your versions may say amazed. He was amazed. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Amen. That's awesome. Awesome passage. Let's go back to verse 5. And there's a couple things in verse 5 that I want to go over just to kind of set the stage for the rest of the teaching today. First of all, this took place in Capernaum. I believe I've shown a similar map before when I've been up here, just so everybody knows where Capernaum is. It was at the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. So it was on a main route actually from Damascus all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And being on the Sea of Galilee, obviously fishing was a huge industry there. And so there was a lot of commerce that took place in Capernaum. For those of you probably remembering your Bible, Matthew, when Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple, it took place here in Capernaum. So that's where this is taking place in Capernaum. Interestingly enough, Capernaum was Jesus' home base, if you will, for his ministry. If we were to flip back about four chapters in Matthew, you will see that they... Matthew basically reminds us that Isaiah had prophesied this about 700 years ago, that this would be where Jesus would minister, in Capernaum. So it fulfills a prophecy from many, many years ago. So that's where, it, where we're located, uh, right there for this, this passage. So when he had entered Capernaum, it says a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. I don't know if y'all have ever taken time to dig into your Roman military, um, it's been a long time since I was in school and we went over this, but I wanted to kind of go through the pecking order for where the centurion sat with the Roman army. And this is going to be important when we look a little later here in our, our scripture. So Roman, the Roman army was divided up in these legions of about 6,000 men at Jesus' time. At the top was a legate or a lieutenant that was appointed by the emperor, and he sat at the top of this particular legion. And then you would have tribunes, six of them, that reported up to the lieutenant, and underneath those tribunes were 60 centurions that essentially had about 100 men roughly underneath them. So that was sort of the order of the Roman army. So obviously the individual we're talking about here was one of the 60 centurions in a Roman legion there at that time. Now, the interesting thing about a centurion is that they actually... They, were, they weren't these leaders that kind of stood to the back and let their men go up front and fight. Actually, a centurion spot on the front line was on the front line on the left-hand side of his men. So he was on the front with them fighting. So as such, lots of respect from the men for a centurion. The centurions were well um, respected. They were well esteemed. They also, when they would go in and take over someplace, they always got a bigger share of the loot, if you will. So they were wealthy, highly esteemed. Problem is, being on that front line, uh, there was a lot of casualties. Uh, obviously, you're out there fighting. But these men, as they continued to fight and became more brave, they would become centurions. 
and they were just very, very well respected in that society by the Romans. The last thing in verse 5 I want to point out for all you Bible scholars, because you would probably easily notice this if you went over to to Luke's version of this. In verse 5 it says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. It actually says the centurion came to Jesus. If you go read Luke's account, it says that he sent his friends and Jewish elders to Jesus. It doesn't say the centurion came to Jesus. It said he sent his friends and the elders to Jesus. And so is that a contradiction? How can we have two gospel writers have two different accounts of this situation? And you'll understand this completely because we do this in our society today. In Jewish life, the messenger or the agent was just like the sender. The messenger and the agent was just like the sender. Probably the easiest example is Jesus was sent by God to be God's agent, essentially, and to share God's word with the people. We see it with our president and the press secretary. The press secretary will come forward and say something, and you will hear people refer to that, well, the president said. However, it wasn't really the president said it, it was through the press secretary. So what Matthew is essentially doing, he's just abbreviating it. He's just basically saying, Jesus said it. Jesus said it. And Luke's just saying, well, Jesus said it through, well, that the, he's saying the centurion said it. Luke's just saying the centurion said it through messengers, if you will. Same scenario, it's just Matthew's just abbreviating it. So there's no contradiction at all in the scripture there. It's just how they chose to communicate it to their readers. So thank you for bearing with me there. That's just a little background on verse 5 and where we are around the centurion and just a little difference there in the two passages. So in the remaining time we have, I want us to focus on three things here about this passage. And I'm going to spend time on the first two, and then we're going to spend a lot more time on the last one. So just so you'll know where we're going. But the first thing is, this centurion, when you read this passage, it just jumps out to you, whether he came to Jesus or he sent servants, however you want to record it, he was desperate about the situation. He was desperate about his servant's situation. It says he comes to him there at the end of verse 5, he came forward to him, appealing to him. Some versions said, pleading to him. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Luke says, sick and about to die. So this is a very, very desperate, desperate situation for him right now. He's coming to Jesus. I love my servant, and I want something done, and there's nothing that I can do to fix it. Nothing at all that I can do to fix it. And there's nothing casual about this approach. Y'all know, you've seen people when they're pleading for something, when they want something done, if we have our kids are in trouble or we think we can get them some treatment, we will do everything we can to get it. That is just common. We see that all the time. He's coming to Jesus saying, please, please do something. I know you can. Please do something for my servant here. And, you know, it's interesting. He, he views his servant is not just someone who worked for him, but this is someone he just deeply, deeply cares about. He deeply cares about his servant. And I just, there's kind of a little leadership lesson there to think about the people we lead and how we care about them, but we won't go down that path. But he cares deeply about his servant. And so he seeks out the one person that he knows can make a difference. There's only one person he knows that could potentially make a difference in his servant's life, and that's Jesus. It doesn't matter to him that he's a Gentile, and he's going to go to a Jew. They just didn't do that in that time. He didn't care. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to try to get my servant 
healed. And that's a big deal for a big time centurion, as we talked about earlier, and how esteemed they were to kind of take their pride, bottle it up, whatever, and go to Jesus, go to someone not a part of their culture, and ask for help. It took courage for him to do that because he knew he had to get to Jesus. And you know, we could go all through the New Testament and look at all those times where people knew if they could just get to Jesus, what he would do for them. If they could just get to Jesus. The paralytic. I love those, I don't know what Bible miniseries this is. There's been so many now, but there's one where he's, where Jesus is standing teaching and all of a sudden dirt that starts falling down on his, in front of him and all of a sudden a big light comes in through the roof and those guys had just ripped open the roof and then they lower that man down there, the paralytic in front of Jesus just to get him healed. I mean, I just think, for me that just seems odd. They just ripped the roof right off and just dropped him in front of there, but they were desperate to get him to there and they went to all extremes to do that. The woman who was bleeding and how she just said, if I can just touch his robe, how beautiful that was. And he was, she was healed. The Canaanite woman with the daughter that was possessed by a demon kept begging Jesus, begging Jesus. And Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right to take what I've given to the Jews and give it to the Gentiles right now. And she says, yeah, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Your faith, your daughter is now healed. Just like the centurion, he didn't even go there. He just healed her. All of these desperately sought out the one that could solve their situation. They all sought that one out. And before we go further, I think that's just a reminder for all of us to kind of take a step back. and Because I think we all fall in this category. I know I do all the time. And I think this is a good question for all of us. What are we desperately seeking and relying on God for? What are you desperately seeking and relying on God for. And it doesn't have to be a, an illness like this situation. I mean, it could be a lost family member. It could be something, some sin you're struggling with that you've struggled with for years, and you're just desperately relying on God to get rid of that. It could just be you just don't want to waste your life. God's given you a limited amount of time on this earth. Lord, just don't let me waste my life. And you know what? I know many of you, as I said earlier on Pray, when y'all come pray on me, I know many of you are desperately seeking God about things. I hear it on Wednesday night. We pray for the lost. We pray for those in Afghanistan. We pray for missionaries across the, the world, praying for God's moving here at LifePoint. And just to hear the tears and the desperation in many of your voices, I know they're just not casual prayers. These are here in this room, men and women who are desperately seeking God to do something. And for some of us, though, this does cause us to take a pause and say, well, what am I really seeking God for? Or am I desperately seeking Him? And sometimes we, and I had to do this before too, sometimes I sit there and think, God, what am I seeking you for? Am I really desperately seeking you for anything? And if I answer that no, what that means in my life is that <laughs> if I'm not seeking God, I'm seeking something. We're all seeking something, whether we know it or not. And in many situations, if I'm not seeking God, then what I'm probably seeking is my own comfort, lying on my own strength, probably. Maybe I'm just desiring everything just to stay the way it is, so I don't really need to desperately be before God. 
And I tell you what, it is so easy to slip into this casualness of praying where you just kind of lose sight of how much we really desperately need God to move in our lives, no matter what it is. And I tell you, we know it, we've seen it here, and we'll see it with our friends. Our lives can change in an instance, and then we're immediately on our knees before him, begging him for something. But we need to always be before him, desperately seeking him for whatever in our life is going on. And this is just a good, good spiritual check for all of us at times, and for me too. What am I desperately seeking God for? Or am I just relying on my own strength? Or am I just happy because everything's comfortable? Look at what the psalmist said in Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That is all to have that... uh, that desire right there, like the psalmist did. So not only was the centurion desperately desperate to seek out Jesus for his servant, that was point number one. The second thing is he recognized his standing before Christ. Let me just pause. I'm getting a little feedback on the, the mic. Is that is everybody okay? Do y'all hear anything? Okay, are y'all good? Maybe it's just me. I, now that I got Matt standing up back there, like, what are you talking about, Kevin? All right, so <laughs> we're good. Sorry about that. I just was getting a little feedback there, but I think we're good now. All right. So he recognized, secondly, he recognized his standing before Christ. So the centurion showed humility. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Let's go back to those. So he says in verse 6, Lord, okay, the fact that he says Lord is instantly acknowledging Jesus as above him, in some situations acknowledging him as a deity. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Not, a, not one hint from this centurion that, hey, because I'm a big, bad centurion, you need to come take care of this situation for me. doesn't use his position at all. He comes to Jesus humbly because he's thinking of Jesus above himself. The fact that he turns, sets right here, for I, no, excuse me, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He knows that if Jesus goes into his house, Jesus will be defiled. That will, that's against the Jewish law. And so he says, Jesus, don't even come into my house. I'm thinking of you above, above myself, even in this tough situation that I'm dealing with. So even in the stress of this moment, he doesn't change his humble attitude. He doesn't change his humble attitude. And you know, God honors humility. And humility is such a beautiful thing, and it's, some, it's, a, it's an attribute, it's a trait that unfortunately we see very little of today. Look at these verses, James 4, 6, and actually James is quoting Proverbs three thirty four here, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Love that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Beautiful words, beautiful words from Jesus there. Years ago, I had a, a guy that God brought into my life um, who was sort of my mentor. 
at work. So when I graduated from college and was going into public accounting, I was terrified that here I was a little believer going into the secular world. And, and how am I going to live out my faith in an environment that obviously wasn't uh, probably going to be pleasing to God in many situations? So I was seeking out believers who I could find. And I said, how do you, how do you live this life out in this workplace? And as God is faithful and always does, I went took a job with this company and ended up, he paired me with a, an individual who had been in that company for about 15 years already who loved Jesus, was an elder in his church. And this guy showed me how to live a life as a believer in a world that obviously doesn't honor Christ. And it's just, it was amazing what he did and showed me in my life. But anyway, the thing about him was smart as he could be. He could sell accounting services to anybody. Now, that's hard to sell accounting services. You think about it, but he could do it. And he was just, he would get up in front of boards and talk, and they would ask him these random questions, and he could just spout out the answers. And I would talk about being amazed at people. I would just sit there in the back thinking, I'm glad they're not asking me that question, and I'm glad he's up there doing it. I was just amazed at his knowledge. But I share all that because on his retirement day, they had a retirement party for him, and you know, usually on those things, everybody sits around and kind of, share stories and makes fun of you. And uh, then at the end, you know, he gets you get up there and speak. And when he got up there to speak at the end, one of his comments that he made was, he said, I am just a turtle on a fence post. That's all I am. I'm just a turtle on a fence post. Basically meaning the only reason I'm up on this post, on this pedestal, is because people God has put in my life have lifted me up and put me on there. And God Almighty has done that work. And I remember him sitting there, little young guy, hearing him say that, and I thought, wow, one of the greatest partners in our firm that I know, and look how humble he is. And again, it just makes you want, I want to have humility like that. God had given him that humility. But unfortunately, we don't see that every day. We don't. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't even see it in the church, and that's sad. And I, at work, sometimes I almost do a double take when I see someone willing to be second. I'm like, whoa. Wow, they're, they're a little different than, than what I usually am used to seeing. Humility is just a beautiful thing, but it is so easy for pride to sneak in to our lives. And pride will destroy a workplace. It will destroy a body of believers, especially pride in the leadership. It will tear it up. And as we desperately seek Christ, we have to constantly be evaluating our motives. That when pride sneaks in, we've got to crush it. We've got to crush it. And we may need each other as believers as this body to call each other out on that. I remember years ago, the, uh, the song, the artist, songwriter, uh, Michael W. Smith, all y'all know him, he was talking, he was giving an interview, and he said he was getting ready to go out on stage. And the crowd was going crazy. He heard all the cheering, and he's standing there in the back, and he's getting, he's just kind of taking it all in. And he said, I caught myself going, man, this feels good. This feels good. feels real good. He said, this guy tapped him on the shoulder, said, Mike, let it go, buddy. Let it go. That guy saw pride in Michael's life, and he said, that guy had the willingness to come to me and say, hey, man, shut it down. Shut it down. They're not here for you. They're here for God. And I remember that. And so we need each other to hold us accountable on that. Maybe it's your prayer team. Maybe it's your accountability team to hold each other when pride may slip in, because pride can slip in even on the good stuff. Even the service here in the church, pride can slip into what we're doing. And when we go to someone and confront them about that, 
they may not come back and say, hey, thank you, old knowledgeable one with great wisdom. Thank you for calling me out on my pride. I do appreciate that. Because if they're in pride, they're probably going to think, what are you talking about? I don't have pride. But then 24, 48 hours later, God's probably going to use that to sink in. It would, he would do that to me, I tell you. I may not react positively if one of y'all came to me and said, Kevin, I think you got pride in your life. But I tell you, within 24, 48 hours, I'd be like, they're probably right. They're probably right. And I would have to confess that. Let's use each other to make sure we don't have pride anywhere in our body. So the centurion was a man with prestige and honor. And he took a back seat to Jesus and those he loved. And then the last thing, which obviously we, this passage always focuses on, is that he had incredible faith. If we pick up there in verse, uh, let's, let's start in verse 9. Let's, see, let's go back in verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I love how he says, for I too am a man under authority. He recognizes that Jesus is under the authority of God. Jesus is under the authority of God as God's son. And the centurion knows, I have authority from Rome. I have authority from my tribune to go do things. If I tell a soldier to go do it, they do it. So if I can do that, how much more can Jesus, God's son, go do that exact same thing? How much more can he do that? He knew that Jesus' authority, he could provide the solution if Jesus chose to do that. And Jesus responded to this faith in three quick ways. First of all, we already talked about he marveled. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. I mentioned to you where it was the other time that Jesus was amazed and marveled. If you go to Mark chapter 6, we're going to read through that here briefly just so you can see the other time, so you know both times here. So this is Jesus in Nazareth. So he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Two situations in Scripture that were recorded. He marveled in both situations. One, because of belief. The other time, because of unbelief. The only two times it's recorded that Jesus marveled. And all through Scripture, we see where Jesus constantly tells us how he is pleased with faith. We see that all through there. And then Hebrews eleven six reminds us, and this is a very, very familiar passage, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus honored faith. And then this verse right here says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. If 
you're going to please him, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You cannot please him without faith. If I have a boss, I've had three bosses now since I've been in my current role at work. Every time I have a boss, one of the first things I do is I sit down and I try to find out what they like and what they don't like because I want to do the things they like um, because they kind of control if I'm going to get paid or not in the future. So I want to know what they they desire. If they want to report a certain way, then I'm going to give them a report a certain way. If they don't like this particular behavior of mine, I'm going to get rid of that behavior. Just not going to do it because I want to honor them because I'm there to serve them in my capacity. And so when we see this verse that we just showed here, if faith pleases God, and we know it does, if faith pleases God, then I want God to increase my faith so I can please him. If faith pleases God, I want God to increase my faith so that I can please him. Now, I tell you, you pray that, that's a scary prayer, buddy. Um, That is scary. How is he going to increase your faith? Um, He may stretch us, probably will stretch us. We probably need to be stretched. But if our ultimate desire is to really please him, if that is truly our desire, and those aren't just words, we're just rambling, but if our desire is to truly please him, we want to be stretched so that we can, we can please him. Absolutely. So Jesus marveled at their faith. Second, and quickly, he, he used this opportunity just to teach. So in verses 11 uh, through 12, I won't read those, but basically he just reminds the, those that were listening there with the centurion, he basically reminds them of the promise that was made to Abraham years ago, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed that the gospel is open not just to the Jewish kingdom or the Jewish nation. It was open to everybody. And he makes it a point to remind them all because the centurion is coming there. He sees that great faith. The gospel is even open to the centurion and to everyone else. And obviously that would rock the Jews' world at that time because they thought they were, they are the chosen nation, but they thought the gospel was specifically for them and not for the Gentiles. And so that teaching was very different for them. But that is a beautiful teaching for all of us, isn't it? It's a beautiful teaching that the gospel is open to all. And I think as we sang the songs earlier, you know, just about Jesus, he came, perfect life, brutally murdered, willingly went to that cross and shed his blood, as we talked last week, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. He willingly did that on our behalf paid that penalty for us, and then went to the grave, God reached down and raised him up. And because of that, gives us hope that after death we can have eternal life with him. If we put our faith and trust in him, ask him to come forgive us for our sins, and willingly give up our lives for him, we can be with him one day in eternity. We have that future hope for those that believe in him. And you can... Today can be the day that you start putting your faith and trust in him. He is there. The gospel is open to all. And you can become a part of the kingdom just by praying that prayer. God, I want to give my life to you. But the beautiful thing is that's the future. The good thing is also that when we go to Jesus, he gives us rest. He gives us rest for our weary souls. Was it Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The struggles we have, the burdens we bear, those things were before God that we're desperately seeking him for. Come to me. I know it's heavy. I will give you rest. Oh, that's just beautiful to know we can put it in his hands 
and trust him with it because he's worthy to do that. What joy for weary souls. What joy. Last thing here is that Jesus answered the centurion's prayer. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. This is in verse 13. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So the centurion believed Jesus could, and Jesus did. And his faith was instantly rewarded. He saw it right there through the healing of his servant. And the gospel shares so many accounts of people that came to Jesus and they were healed. They showed great faith. Um, you go to Hebrews 11, that faith chapter just reminds us of all these people in the Old Testament. Because of their faith, they were commended. And it's just beautiful. Abraham, Noah, Moses, Rahab, all of them. But then, if you go to the bottom of that chapter towards the end, it also reminds us there was a lot of people who had great faith, who were commended for their faith, and at least and on this earth, it didn't turn out so well from our perspective. Men and women who became poor, were tortured, lost their homes, were put in prison, stoned, martyred. Warren Wearsby says in his commentary, sometimes it takes more faith to endure than it does to escape. And there's so many individuals there that were commended for their faith that had to endure here on this earth. And all of these, no matter their earthly reward, were commended for their faith. They all were. But they all had one more thing in common, too. More than the fact that they were just commended for their faith. Through their faith, God was glorified. Through their faith, God was glorified. And that reminds us that the goal of our faith is not in the outcome of our present situation. The goal of our faith is not in the outcome of our present situation. The goal of faith is in glorifying God by trusting in him despite the outcome. The goal of faith is glorifying God by trusting in him despite the outcome. First Peter, I think, sums this up great here in chapter 1, 6, 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And we don't know, we don't know how God is going to get the glory and all the things that we come before him. We don't know how he's going to work. We just don't know. That's not for us to know at times. Sometimes we get to see it immediately. Sometimes we don't. And you know what? That is okay. That is okay. But that should not prevent us from coming before him, petitioning him desperately. Because he can... If he chooses, he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as Ephesians tells us. And so we always need to be desperately bringing whatever before him and desperately seeking him. So keep praying for the lost, keep praying for healing, keep praying for direction, because he can. He can. And in many situations, we're going to see he will right before our eyes. That's just good, encouraging words. And when you read all through Scripture... And you read through that, that faith chapter where everybody's just commended for their faith and some saw the reward here, some didn't, they were in heaven. You got all these wonderful, wonderful things in Scripture to encourage us. And then I just love how the writer of Hebrews then takes it all and goes into Hebrews 12. This is right after the faith chapter. In light of all these people before us, all these we read about here, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off 
everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off pride. Let us confess we're not desperately before God really seeking him. Let's just throw all that to the side. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We're all on a different race, every one of us. Some of you on your race, you're going to be praying for things, and you're going to see God instantly do some amazing stuff in your life. You're going to come share that, and we're going to be encouraged by it. We're going to praise God and give him the glory. Some of you are going to be on a race, and we may not see that here on this earth. We may not see the results of some of your praying until maybe you stand before Jesus. But you know what? That is okay. That is okay. We have a race that he has given us to march down, to run down, I guess not march, but to run. No matter what race we're on, whether whatever we see God do and what we don't see God do, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus glorified God by going to the cross. John 17 tells us that. He glorified God by growing, going to the cross. And as Rachel said earlier when she was talking about the passage of Philippians, then God got the glory when he raised Jesus from the dead. God got the glory when he raised Jesus from the dead. He can, he is able, and he is worthy. And no matter what God does, we're going to praise him for it's his glory we're after. So in conclusion, the account of the centurion reminds us to come before God desperately and with humility, come before him desperately and with humility. And the goal of our faith is in him and his glory. And I'll conclude with this. I love this passage of scripture in Psalm, Psalm 115, verses 1 through 3. It says, Psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Verse 2, why do the nations say, where is their God? Where is this God of the Israelites? Why do the nations say, where is their God? The response in verse 3, our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases, because he is a good, loving, and faithful God. We can trust that whatever he pleases is best. May the faith that God creates within us and that we express in him result in his glory and his glory alone. Oh Lord, give us, LifePoint Church, courageous love. Give us courageous faith as we serve you on whatever path you have before us. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that at least in my life personally, uh, I find myself so many times uh, just not having the faith in you that, that I know I should. And I let so many things distract me from who you are and for what you do and what you can do. I just uh, I pray for forgiveness when I just allow fear to slip in and the worries of this world to take hold of me. And I just thank you for this passage and just how it just reminds us of, of who you are and how we can desperately come before you in humility and just how you honor that. And no matter what the outcome, Lord, you're glorified. And Father, I just pray 
for all of us here in our personal lives, that you would just work and show us, Lord, uh, if there's anything there that we need to change. And then also for our church collectively, Father, would you just continue to move? You know what you're going to do with LifePoint Church in the days ahead. And we want to be so aligned with you in that. So aligned. And if there's anything where we're just we're distracted or we're missing the boat, would you just show us? And Lord, as you do, just give us courageous love for one another and for the world. Give us courageous faith in you. Uh, I know you can do this. You promise you will do this. Lord, I love you. I thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. And I'm just so, so thankful that you're a God who works. You're continuing to work in our lives, in the lives of this, in the life of this church. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Of my heart, I want to see.